Hi, I'm Paula, and this is a Contemplative Revolution podcast brought to you by WCCM. In this episode, you're going to listen to the second talk of the series, Who Do You Think You Are?, with Kim Nataraja, where she explores her book, Dancing With Your Shadow, and its connection with the pandemic crisis. This is part of the Contemplative Path Through the Crisis program by WCCM. Welcome back. Thank you. Nice um, to be back. We, we've, we've had some very uh, warm and positive uh, responses to, to your first um, talk on the shadow and the way of meditation. Um, and your illuminating remarks about the ego, understanding the distinction between the ego and the true self and the process of self-discovery that we find in meditation. And I think you're going to, can you tell us more about that? You're going to, you're going to guide us into a, a deeper or broader understanding of that and, and also give us some other perspectives on what this uh, process is like and how we can describe it in, uh, even in sort of neurological terms. So maybe, you can take us further into this mystery. Okay, for, for, the, for those who are listening and watching, the shadow is not appearing yet. Uh, this is like in, in true sort of Hitchcock style. It will appear when you least expect it. But since we're all uh, attached to our ego to a greater or lesser extent, um, I'd like to add another aspect we, we haven't talked about, and I'm sure you don't mind hearing that again. Um, as you no doubt will remember, our ego is all about survival. Uh, therefore, to be secure and accepted we own the thoughts of others, absorbed at first unconsciously, and then later consciously, along with all the influences that come out of our environment, from the family, the culture, the religion, and the society in which we find ourselves. Now, when we are on the spiritual path for some time, there comes a moment when we become aware, aware of what binds us to the past. And that insight, that clarity, allows us then to say, that was then, this is now. And we can slowly loosen these bonds. But it is more difficult to do that with the role aspect, the roles and functions we have in life, which become a terribly important aspect of our self-image. First, of course, our roles in the family. I don't need to specify those. You know them. Our roles at school, were you a good sportsman or sportswoman, student or not, all those reactions, all those 
images people have of you then become part of your self-image and a very important part. And then finally, the way we earn our living. That is quite a tricky one. We can identify so much with it that actually we are just our role, our image, and nothing else. It's the sharp lawyer who comes home and treats his kids and wife in the same way. Just one example. But it is very difficult. And I want to tell you a story which illustrates this. It's not about the lawyer, but it is about a duck. A duck walks into a pub, we're in London. So a duck walks into a pub and orders a pint of lager and a ham sandwich. So the landlord looks at him and says, but you're a duck. I see your eyes are working, replies the duck. And you talk, exclaims the landlord. Ah, oh, yes, I see your ears are working too, says the duck. But do you mind, can I have my beer and ham sandwich, please? Certainly, says the landlord. Sorry about that. We just don't get many ducks in this pub. What are you doing around this way? Well, I'm working on the building site across the road, explains the duck. So the duck drinks his beer, eats his sandwich, and leaves. And this continues for two weeks. Then one day, the circus comes to town. The ringleader of the circus comes into the pub and the moment the landlord sees him, he says, you're with the circus, aren't you? Well, just listen to this. I know this duck that would be brilliant in your circus. He talks, he drinks beer and everything. Sounds marvelous, says the ringleader. Get him to give me a call. So the next day, the duck comes into the pub and the landlord says, hey, Mr. Duck, reckon I can line you up with the top dog paying really good money. Sounds great. Where is it, says the duck. At the circus, says the landlord. The circus? The duck inquires. That's right, replies the landlord. The circus. The duck looks confused. The circus, that place with the big tent, with all the animals, with the big canvas roof with the pole in the middle. Yes, that's right, said the landlord. The duck shakes his head and looks even more confused. What on earth do they want with the plasterer? <laughs> you 
tell it very you said it very well I was on the edge of my seat <laughs> <laughs> well and we may not be ducks but we do act in that way sometimes and I must tell you a personal thing when I retired it must be about 20 odd years ago now from being a college lecturer I had to fill an official form in and it asked what was my profession and guess what? What I wrote down, retired college lecturer. <laughs> I, I must I did laugh at myself when I read it again. <laughs> so we all do it. We all do it. But meditation has been for me and for many others very helpful in realizing that you are more than you think you are to still the busy mind and then realize despite that, despite no thoughts, you still exist. You exist in silence and peace. And that's a wonderful experience. Well, meditation is the way of many of us, but there are of course other ways this can happen too. Be totally absorbed in a painting, in nature, in poetry, and music. I think I will let T.S. Eliot express it better than I can. Lost in the music, heard so deeply that it's not heard at all. But you are the music when the music lasts. What is it that must be more to us then? We weren't thinking. What is actually allowing this to happen? The sense of peace and joy and connectedness. Not feeling separate anymore. Well, our daughter Shanita, as some of you know, is a neuroscientist. And she came back from her postdoctoral fellowship at Johns Hopkins Medical School in Baltimore, where she was researching about the role of what the brain plays in memory and learning. But in her very few moments of spare time, she did some research on the scientific validity of meditation, which had been part of our family life, from our family, from our life, for as long as she could remember. So she asked, started our conversation by asking me, what did I think was the most important aspect of meditation? I didn't have to think much, and I said, well, paying one pointed attention, point attention, and she responded by saying, you don't know how right you are. And I will share with you now what I then learned. We all have two hemispheres that make up our brain, each with a different but complementary function. We need both. Both hemisphere 
allow us to act out of different aspects of our being. The left brain is our rational, logical part of our brain and expresses itself, as we explained last week, in language. In fact, you could compare the left brain with a, an internet search engine. It searches for answers to our experience. It tries to extract meaning from what is happening around us. So you could call it the interpreter. But I'm not too sure about that term interpreter. It is very subjective and selective and filters out any material that could threaten our survival because the center is the ego. So rather than calling it an interpreter, I would, would, it would be more correct to call it a spin doctor. Well, the right hemisphere is quite different. It's nonverbal and intuitively examines experience and stores it in images and emotions. Its center is intuition. Apparently, according to research, it is the oldest part of our brain. So between birth and two years, we actually only act out of that part. They've shown that with EEG um, tests. That also explains the story I told you last week about a boy and a baby. The baby was still completely collect, connected to the divine reality. And in fact, the right brain is the home of the spiritual side of our being and the creative side of our being. From there, we can link into other levels of reality and consciousness, and thus have transpersonal spiritual experiences. In fact, in Shanida's words, she said, our brain contains hardwiring that allows us to experience both higher states of consciousness and an all-pervading unity that can be equated to God. We call it God, we call it Christ, and the link is the Christ within. But it's called in different names by many people, in different traditions, Buddha nature, Brahman, Atman, the Tao, you name it. But it's there, this reality, and we can tap into it. So, what is it that switches? Shanida said the answer was one-pointed attention. Well, the control center for attention is the right hemisphere. We do have attention in our left brain, of course, as well, our left hemisphere. But the control center is in the right. So by focusing one-pointedness on our mantra, 
we switch on our right hemisphere. And then, when we meditate regularly, bridges are built between the two hemispheres. There always were bridges, but many more now. And that facilitates the cooperation and ease of switching between the two different aspects of our being. It allows the left brain to make sense of the experience the right brain has. And it allows the right brain to influence our behavior and our being with its compassion and wisdom. Because one result of the connectedness of the non-isolation is a feeling of compassion for all who are part in this unity, a love for all and a love for the divine. The ego, so I mentioned to you that under two children mainly focus from the right hemisphere, the ego starts only developing age two. Now we all know about the terrible twos when the kids has suddenly decided it is a will of its own. Now, because children are still so connected to the right brain, they take to meditation as ducks to water. And the implication of this is that we can all return to this original consciousness if we temporarily switch off the ego circuit. We need the ego circuit, but we can switch it off temporarily. In fact, in Jesus' words, when we leave self behind. And then we will become consciously aware of what we knew unconsciously. Our intimate connectedness with everyone, nature, and divine reality. As John Maine put it, meditation is a return to our original innocence. Now a warning here before I finish. Ignore those neuroscientists who assert that everything that happens to us is merely a product of the brain. They operate out of their left brain. They don't like talk of spirituality. We all fear what we do not understand. But many other scientists see the brain as a beautiful instrument which can turn into different levels of reality. And because we have that, to call Geneva, hardwiring, we all are potential contemplatives. And since that brings with it compassion, love, and wisdom, it will save the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. That was both illuminating and encouraging. Um, can, I, can I just ask you, 
one one question, and of course we invite uh, the people who are who are watching this to send in their comments and their questions as well. Um, you see, I am. It seems to me that this evokes what Jesus says to the to us when he tells us that we must become like little children or we cannot enter the kingdom. In, in the light of that, absolutely. You know, in light of that, how would you understand the kingdom? And would you say that children are in the kingdom in a way that we are not or would like to be? Ah. I think we, we are all in the kingdom. We are all there. The difference between us and children are that children remember and we forget because we're so focused on our ordinary life. But it doesn't mean to say we are not there. No one is outside the kingdom. Everything is a part of it. Uh, the kingdom, the presence of the divine, whatever you want to call it, no one is excluded. Mm. We can always step back into it and remember. Interesting. Uh, thank you. Just, I've always thought with children, you know, if, you, if a child wants, to, you, you promised to a child that you'll take them to the park, yeah. Tomorrow, they will look forward to it and they will remember it. Yeah. And then if you say no, we can't go to the park tomorrow, they will look very disappointed. You know. Absolutely not fair. A break or promise to a child, but uh, if you were to say to the child, "But I'll take you there in a couple of months," it wouldn't. It wouldn't. I think. Tell me if I'm right. It wouldn't register with them as in the same way that it would maybe be some kind of consolation or some kind of uh, excuse to an adult if you were to say look I, we can't do this now but we'll do it in next year or we'll do it in a few months but a child doesn't have that that extension of consciousness into the future dimension of time and is 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 that is that also, is that true, do you think, in your experience, as, as somebody who's reared children? Yes, ab ab absolutely. And again, uh, science has done experiments about delayed gratification, which this is, in a way, an example of. Uh, some children are better at it than others, but on the whole, it is, it is difficult. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I think, we can do that and that's why we can return in our conscious mind to what was unconscious we can say okay i'm i'm hopeless at meditation uh, i want to give up and then you hear you or me or any of the other good teachers say no don't persevere and we will persevere because somehow at a deep unconscious level, we know that divine reality is there or in with kiddies, the path will not disappear. Hmm. 
but it, it was it not Plato? Let me see whether I remember my Plato that he said all learning is remembering. Yes. So, yeah, yeah, that that that's that's interesting. Yes, I mean I don't have the answers to to all of this either. This is just uh, my sort of thoughts and opinions. Um, but um, it it is it's an interesting thought, isn't it? But I, there, no one can escape in being in divine presence. You just have to re-enter. No, no, that's the wrong word. Not re-enter. Just remember. <laughs> yes, just remember. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, yes. Maybe there are no final answers or definitions of this, but it's very important that we are reminded uh, of this depth dimension to life, especially when we're facing a lot of stress, anxiety, uncertainty about the future. We, we, and I think I, I think that neurological research also shows that uh, the left brain, left hemisphere of the brain, finds it very difficult to live with uncertainty. Yes. Whereas the the right hemisphere uh, finds it uh, much much more natural and normal and and possible to 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 cope and to and to get on with things, even though you don't know exactly how they're going to turn out and as we're facing a huge amount of uncertainty in our global situation at the moment we we need we need to muscle up on the right hemisphere i think in order to be able to absolutely and that means paying one pointed attention to meditation and we'll we'll be there yeah then we, we will remember. But yes, it is a difficult time. And when I was talking about roles, I was thinking of the people who are made unemployed or so-called redundant. We don't know what will happen to them. And it's very tough. It's very tough because it, it attacks the survival mm. instinct. Um, so, but again, it would help them if they can to meditate and link into the wider meaning of them yeah. more than what they do and the trust that things will change. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Well, thanks for the encouragement and the affirmation of being on this path and uh, we look forward to our next encounter with your insights and, and experience. Thank you, Kim. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to the Contemplative Revolution podcast and listen to your favorite podcast app. In the media section of the WCCM website, wccm.org, you can also find a large amount of video and audio content on meditation. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.